0: Welcome to the Trinity Reformed Church Podcast. Sunday School by Jason Cherry on January 2nd, Lord's Day service. Heavenly Father, thank you for this day, thank you for this new year, and thank you for your work in our midst in this past year. Uh, We pray that you would be with us this morning as we talk about baptism. I pray that we can do so with a worshipful spirit. Pray that you would give us clarity, and we dedicate this time to you this morning. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so I am speaking to a mixed audience today And what that means is, is there are some of you who are settled, convicted, credo-baptists, which means you uh, believe that we should delay baptism until a profession of faith. And then there are some of you who are settled, convicted, paedo-baptists, and that, that means infant baptism and so we have this mixed audience and that's been a unique thing within our church and honestly it's been cultivated from the beginning because we feel like there's no need for us to divide on this issue even though that's customarily what's been done in the american church and so we have this policy this this kind of uh... this understanding we call it catholicity where basically it means we're going to get along with each other and it means that even though as a church our confessional document the westminster confession of faith uh... ascribes uh... And espouses infant baptism and that's our conviction Um, we still uh, don't want to push credo baptist away when they want to be here with us because they agree with so much of what's going on in every other sense and so in those cases we do defer to the head of household in terms of how they want to handle the baptism of their own children and so we've got this mixed audience we've got credo baptist and then we've got paedo baptist and so teaching on baptism might then seem like it's potentially divisive. <clears throat> Our hope, though, is that it's the exact opposite. Um, and so the goal here is, first off, we're acknowledging that there's a mixed audience. And the goal, as it relates to credo Baptist, the goal is not to browbeat you until you submit to paedo-baptism. Uh, the goal is honestly not even to persuade you. Uh, the, the goal is much more modest. The goal is to help you see why paedo-baptists baptize infants and why paedo-baptists sprinkle in baptism. And the reason that's the goal is because I grew up in a credo-baptist circle, so I know this very well. Most credo-baptists have honestly no idea why those crazy people are baptizing infants and why they're doing it by sprinkling. They think, honestly, I don't really see that in Acts. Uh, I, I don't understand where they're getting it. And, and so you know, there's just really not much understanding, typically, on why they do that even in the first place. And so, really, what we want to do is we just want to help you, Credo baptists especially, understand why we baptize infants, why we baptize through sprinkling, and then, of course, in that, hopefully, we'll see some of the meaning of baptism. So, that's the goal for, for you who are Credo Baptist. For you who are Paedo Baptist, um, my hope is that you will be able to uh, see the depths of Scripture anew and afresh, and that you will wonder in, in the glory of the Lord and what He's accomplished as we study baptism so that's that's the goal and that's what we're going to be doing here in the next several weeks and so we want to start with the fact that we believe that both the Old Testament and the New Testament are the inspired Word of God and so that means the Old Testament is the shadow and the New Testament is the fulfillment And as we step into this question of baptism, I think the proper place to start today, at least, is to understand why did the first century church start baptizing people? Like, did they just wake up one day and they're like, hey, you're going to be a Christian? Hey, let's put your head in water. Like Where did they get this? Why are they doing this? Why is it that we open the pages of the New Testament and we see baptism as this sign of the New Covenant? Did they just make this up out of the blue? Did they just say, hey, baptism, this is, you know, let's dunk them in water. This seems good. Was it a cultural thing? Where did they get this? And what we're going to see today and next week is that, no, they didn't just make it up. They didn't just say, hey, let's just put water on them and that'll be kind of an outward sign. They, you know, they didn't do that. They got it from the Old Testament. And today we need to begin to see that the Old Testament has something to say about baptism. The Old Testament has something to say about baptism. And it's also to demonstrate the fact that a sort of baptism was practiced in the Old Testament. That's our objective. A sort of baptism was practiced in the Old Testament. Okay, that's our overarching goal. Okay, so the first thing I want us to look at here is just the simple fact that bag- baptism was practiced in the Old Testament. So this is the first main thing I want you to walk away with today. I want you to see that baptism was practiced in the Old Testament. And we need to start in Hebrews chapter 6 verses 1 through 2. And I've got to tell you, if you're listening to this, whether now or on the podcast later, if you're casually listening to this while you're doing the laundry, you will not get much out of it. This is not superficial study. We're doing pretty deep exegetical work for the next four weeks. You're going to need to be leaning in. You're going to need to be actively listening, not passively listening while you do three other things. Uh, you know, you're going to really need to focus, and that starts with probably having your Bible out uh, with, with you. And so we're going to start with Hebrews chapter 6, verses 1 through 2. Beginning in verse 1. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and move on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and faith toward God. And of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. Right, I want you to notice something. Notice in verse 1 that the author of Hebrews tells us to leave the elementary doctrine of Christ. And he then lists six things that he considers the elementary parts of Christianity. He then lists six things that he considers the basics, the most elementary part of Christianity, the foundations. And this list starts in verse 1. The first thing is, the first basic elementary part of Christianity is repentance from dead works. Second, faith towards God. Third, instruction about washings. Fourth, laying on of hands. And it has to do with the giving of the Holy Spirit and commissioning of an office in the church. Fifth, the resurrection of the dead and sixth eternal judgment. So those are the six things that are the basics of Christianity the foundations the elementary parts of Christianity and virtually every one of those six things probably in fact each of those six things could have been endorsed by Orthodox Judaism Orthodox Judaism believed in those six things and yet each of those six things acquired new significance in the light of Jesus the Messiah coming. Now, I want you to focus your attention on the third of those six things. The beginning of verse two, notice the third thing mentioned. In the ESV it's worded like this, instructions about washings. The KJV renders this verse The doctrine of baptisms. The doctrine of baptisms, plural. Okay, so notice two things about that phrase. Instructions about washings, or other words, doctrines about baptisms. Notice first it's baptisms, plural. And so therefore we know he's not talking about Christian baptism. Ephesians 4, 5 makes it clear that there's only one baptism in the New Covenant. So whatever he's talking about here is not Christian baptism. Second, notice that this is the Greek word baptismos. Baptismos is different from the word baptisma. See, the word baptismos appears only four times in the New Testament. It appears here. It appears in Hebrews 9.10. It also appears in Mark 7.4. And it appears in Colossians 2.12. And baptismos is different from baptisma. Baptisma is the word that's translated, and it means Christian baptism. And so again, we know that whatever he's talking about in Hebrews 6, 2, he's not talking about Christian baptism. So then what is he talking about when he says, a foundational part of understanding Christianity is understanding instructions about washings to understand the doctrine of baptisms what's he talking about well he's talking about old testament baptisms old testament washings old testament baptisms and in hebrews 9:10 when this same word is used the author uses the word the author uses the word baptismos again. And when he uses the word baptismos in Hebrews 9.10, he's explicitly, as we'll see in a moment, he's explicitly talking about the ritual washings of the Old Testament. And so again, it's very clear then that what he's talking about in Hebrews 6.2 is Old Testament baptisms. So the author of Hebrews... Okay, let's just reset here. The author of Hebrews... In Hebrews chapter 6 verses 1 through 2 is saying that the doctrine of Old Testament baptisms is foundational to the church. Think about this. The doctrine of Old Testament baptisms is foundational to the church. So not only did the author of Hebrews say that the doctrine of Old Testament baptisms is foundational to the church, but he also, notice what he's doing in Hebrews 6, 1 through 2, he expects the church to understand these doctrines so well that from them they can then go on to maturity. In other words, Christian doctrinal maturity is built on top of the foundation of an understanding of the doctrine of Old Testament baptisms. In other words, your doctrine of Christian baptism must be built on the foundation of the doctrine of Old Testament baptisms. If you want to have a mature understanding, the words of the author of Hebrews, if you want to have a mature understanding of Christian baptism, it must start by understanding the foundation of Old Testament baptisms. So then I have to ask the question, how many of us know anything about the doctrine of Old Testament baptisms. And yet, how many of us have built a doctrine of baptism without that understanding? And so what we need to do then, if we're to obey what the author of Hebrews tells us, is we need to understand the doctrine of Old Testament baptisms. And so let's do that. Let's understand the doctrine of Old Testament baptisms. And let's consider five examples of Old Testament baptismos. That is five examples of Old Testament washings for purification. Okay, and we're going to go pretty quick through these because I just want to show them to you. We're not going to elaborate. I just want you to see that the Old Testament teaches and practices a form of washing or baptismals. So let's begin in Leviticus chapter 14. This is our first example of Old Testament baptism. Leviticus 14. So Leviticus 14 is about cleaning rituals for those with skin diseases. And the rituals prescribed in this chapter are for the purpose of admitting back into the community those who had been excluded because of the uncleanliness of their very serious skin disease. But these people had recovered from that skin disease. So then how do we admit those people back into the life of the community? Well, they have rituals for this. And the rituals, therefore, are not an attempt to heal them. The rituals um, followed the recognition that they'd already healed. And so part of the ritual, as we see described in Leviticus chapter 14, part of the ritual was the washings. And so, for example, look at Leviticus 14, 8. An example of Old Testament baptism. And he who is to be cleansed shall wash his clothes and shave off all his hair and bathe himself in water, and he shall be clean. And so there we see the cleansing rituals amount to the celebration of new life because the person was restored from near death to the land of the living and into communion with God and with God's people. Now, if you go back and look at verses 4 through 7, what you see is that the washings were performed, but so too were sacrifices performed with the washings. So go back and look at Leviticus chapter 14, verses 4 through 7, and notice how sacrifices are mixed with the washing. It says, starting in verse 4, the priest shall take... Two live clean birds and cedar wood and scarlet yarn and hyssop, and the priest shall command them to kill one of the birds in an earthenware vessel over fresh water. He shall take the live bird with the cedar wood and the scarlet yarn and the hyssop and dip them and the live bird in the blood of the bird that was killed over the fresh water, and he shall sprinkle it seven times on him who is to be cleansed of the leprous disease. Then he shall pronounce him clean. So notice how the washing that we read in verse 8 is preceded by the sacrifices in verses 4 through 7. And notice how they are connected. What you do, and we're going to see this over and over again, is you take the blood of the sacrificed animal and you mix it with the water and then you sprinkle it on the person. This is the doctrine of Old Testament baptismals that we saw the author of Hebrews reference. So then, how did, in Leviticus 14, how did they practice washing? How did they practice baptismos? Through sprinkling water mixed with blood on the person. So that's the first example of Old Testament baptism. The second example was found in Leviticus chapter 15. In Leviticus chapter 15, this chapter describes uncleanness of many types that resulted from, uh, for one thing, from emissions from the male and female reproductive organs, and in this chapter it distinguishes between chronic and abnormal discharges on the one hand, and then intermittent normal discharges on the other. And so there's just these different types of scenarios in which clean, uh, in, in which ritual uncleanness happens, and therefore they need to be cleansed. And so. Uh, how are they commanded to deal with this uncleanness? Well, among other things, they're given instructions for purification through washings. Through washings, the washings, remember, that were mentioned in Hebrews 6, two. And so as we just kind of scan this, for example, notice Leviticus 15, verse 5. Anyone who touches his bed shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water. Verse 6. Shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water. Verse 7. Shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water. Verse 8, he shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water. Verse 10, shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water. Verse 13, shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in fresh water and shall be clean. Verse 17, shall be washed with water and be unclean until the evening. Verse 21, he shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water. Verse 27, he shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water. And then verses 29 and 30 or the prescribed offerings. And so what we see here is Old Testament baptismos. These are the Old Testament washings, ritual washings, the Old Testament baptismos that the author of Hebrews said we must understand before we can go on to doctrinal maturity in terms of Christian baptism. So that's two examples of baptism practiced in the Old Testament. Let's look at another one, still in Leviticus, Go to Leviticus 22. Leviticus 22. This is our third example of baptism practiced in the Old Testament. Leviticus 22, 1 through 9. So, so this passage says that if a priest becomes unclean for any reason, he is prohibited from eating the holy food until he has received the baptism of purification. And so if you look, for example, verse 6 is the key verse here. It says, The person who touches such a thing shall be unclean until the evening and shall not eat of the holy things unless he has bathed his body in water. Again, there's a third example of baptism in the Old Testament. Now, go to Numbers chapter 21. This is our fourth example of baptism in the Old Testament. We're laying the foundations. The author of Hebrews commands this. We're laying the foundations of Old Testament instructions about washing. So here's the fourth example of such things. Numbers 31, this is an interesting passage. So uh, this passage describes the purification of that which comes out of heathen lands. And so when things came out of heathen lands, whether people or things themselves, whether Israelite soldiers and proselytes or the things they brought with them, those things had to be washed. They had to go through the ritual washings. And so we're not going to read the whole chapter, but just look, for example, at Numbers 31, 23. Everything that can stand the fire. And so Numbers 31, 23, everything that can stand the fire. So that, if you go back and look, that's gold, silver, bronze. These are the things they're bringing from foreign lands into the Into Israel, everything that can stand the fire, you shall pass through the water, and it shall be clean. Nevertheless, it shall also be purified with water for impurity. And whatever cannot stand the fire, like a human being, you shall pass through the water. So, Old Testament baptismos was practiced for people and things that were brought out of heathen lands. That's the fourth example of baptism practiced in the Old Testament. And the fifth and final example that we'll look at is Numbers 19. Numbers 19. And so the law commands purity and holiness. And so before leaving Sinai, Israel had to cut off from the camp all unclean persons. So why were unclean persons cut off? We'll go to verse 20. Why were unclean persons cut off? Well, Numbers 19.20 says, If the man who is unclean does not cleanse himself, that person shall be cut off from the midst of the assembly since he has defiled the sanctuary of the Lord. Because the water for impurity has not been thrown on him, he is unclean. Which then, of course, means, as you extrapolate this out, that the water is the thing that cleans that cleans him. The ritual washing would be the thing that cleans him. So the one who is unclean defiles the sanctuary. And so there's this system of sacrifices and washings, sacrifices and baptismos to purify the unclean person. And as you go through this chapter, there are small differences in the sacrifice and washing instructions depending on the situation. For example, consider the situation of touching or getting near a dead body. Numbers 19, 17 through 19. Well, if, if you were in that situation, you were unclean if you touched a dead body. And so that person had to go through the baptiz- baptism of Nida, uh, that is the, had to go through the waters of purification, the baptism of purification. So we see this in Numbers 19, 17 through 19. For the unclean, they shall take some ashes of the burnt sin offering, and fresh water shall be added in a vessel. Then a clean person shall take hyssop and dip it in the water and sprinkle it on the tent and on all the furnishings and on the persons who were there on whoever touched the bone or the slain or the dead of the grave. And the clean person shall sprinkle it on the unclean on the third day and on the seventh day. Thus on the seventh day he shall cleanse him, and he shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water, and at evening he shall be clean. So that's just one of the several examples in Numbers 19 of what you do to clean someone who has become ritually unclean. In this case, the situation is when you touch a dead body. Now, this Numbers passage, by the way, explains that really confusing passage in 1 Corinthians 15, 29, if you want to flip over and look at it. 1 Corinthians 15, 29 is a very confusing passage. Okay, let's look at it, and as soon as we read it, you'll see why it's confusing. And it's really confusing if you don't obey the author of Hebrews and don't build your doctrine off of the Old Testament doctrines of baptism. So 1 Corinthians 15, 29 says, Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? This verse is the bane of commentators, commentators, this is a very difficult verse because people read that and they think, wait, 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 was the early church baptizing people on behalf of the dead? Kind of like the Catholic church required indulgences for people on behalf of the dead. Was the early church really saying, grandma died, so you come get baptized for grandma so that she can have some sort of spiritual blessing? Is that what they were doing? And the answer, of course, is no. <laughs> no that's not at all what they were doing. When you look at this verse, 1 Corinthians 15, 29, it says... What do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? Well, um, on behalf of is uh, this, this, it's, the, it's the word hyper, and it can be translated in a lot of different ways. Um, and on behalf of is just one of the options. Um, But what you have to see is that this verse is referring back to that situation in Numbers 19, 14 through 19. In Numbers 19, as we read, when you touch the dead, you are unclean and you need to be baptized. That is, you need to be washed. And so then when you read 1 Corinthians 15, 29, and it says, baptized on behalf of the dead, that that, uh, preposition hyper should really be translated because of the dead or with reference to the dead. So they were being baptized with reference to the dead or because of the dead. And it's referring back to Numbers 19. Paul is referring to the commonplace Jewish washing of those who have touched a dead body and are unclean. So they're being baptized because they touched a dead person. They're being ritually washed because they touched a dead person. And they're obeying Numbers 19. That's what's going on in 1 Corinthians 15 29, and I hope you're starting to get the idea here. Um, There's a lot of examples of Old Testament baptism in the scriptures. We're not going to go through every example. I've given you five, I think that's plenty you at least get, though, these five examples of the elementary doctrine of baptisms in the Old Testament. Remember, the author of Hebrews said, if you want to go on to doctrinal maturity, you have to build that doctrine off of the six things listed. The third of those six things was an understanding of Old Testament washings or Old Testament baptismos. Okay? So we've looked at a lot of details, but there's really only one thing we've just seen. Okay? This is the one thing I want you to have in your head you now see that baptism, or a sort of baptism, was practiced in the Old Testament. So that's the first thing I want you to walk away with today, an understanding that a sort of baptism was practiced in the Old Testament. Now let's move on to the second thing that we need to see this morning. The second thing we need to see this morning is that the New Testament authors assumed that the Old Testament taught about baptism people in the New Testament assumed that the Old Testament taught about baptism. Remember, we started with the question of, wait, why was the early church baptizing people? Where did they get this notion? And as we're seeing, they got it from the Old Testament, and the people in the New Testament assumed the Old Testament taught about baptism. And we're seeing how we cannot go on to maturity until the elementary doctrine of baptisms are mastered. And so let's look at three examples of how the New Testament assumes that the Old Testament teaches about baptism. Okay, three examples. First example comes from the book of Hebrews. We're going to look at Hebrews 9 and 10. Hebrews 9 and 10. So a few chapters after Hebrews 6, The author of Hebrews connects Christian baptism in Hebrews 10 with Old Testament baptism in Hebrews 9. Okay, so let's start with the Christian baptism reference. This is Hebrews chapter 10, verse 22, when he says, Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So that verse there is talking talking about Christian baptism. At it again, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Okay, so that's talking about Christian baptism. Okay, well, why is he talking about Christian baptism? Why is he referencing how you know the water cleans us from an evil conscience and all of this? Well, it's because if you go back into the argument of Hebrews, into Hebrews chapter 9. You see that in Hebrews chapter 9, the author of Hebrews was doing the very thing he prescribed in Hebrews 6. In Hebrews 9, he gives us an explanation, an interpretation of Old Testament baptism, and then he builds his doctrine of New Testament baptism in Hebrews 10 off of that understanding. So let's go back and look quickly at Hebrews uh, Hebrews 9. And... We've already read those passages in the Old Testament that demonstrate that Old Testament baptism was performed by sprinkling a combination of blood and water. And they would then sprinkle that on the people. That was how Old Testament baptism was practiced. And then we see the author of Hebrews making that specific point, reinforcing how it was done. Look at Hebrews 9.10. So here he's talking about how the Old Testament sacrificial system does not perfect the conscience of the worshiper. Then he sums up the Old Testament sacrificial system with these words, Hebrews 9.10, but deal only with food and drink and various washings. That's the word baptismos, the one that occurs only four times in the New Testament. But deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of Reformation. Okay, So this word, washings, it's the same word in Hebrews 6, 2, baptismos. And the key is to then notice, as the author of Hebrews builds his argument, then notice how the author of Hebrews explains how Old Testament washings, that is, Old Testament baptismos, was performed. Look at verse 13. Look at what he wants you to know about how it was performed. Verse 13, for if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh. So, do you remember back to the five examples of Old Testament baptism? And do you remember how the blood and water were mixed in those Old Testament passages we read earlier? Right? This is what the author of Hebrews is emphasizing. So, then keep reading in in Hebrews 9.19. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people. Then verse 21. In the same way, he sprinkled with blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. And so we see the author of Hebrews, as he explains to us in summary fashion, the Old Testament doctrine of baptisms, the thing he referenced, in Hebrews 6.2, he's emphasizing the fact that here's what happened, guys. Here's what happened. The Old Testament sacrificial system, they got the blood mixed with the water, and then what did they do with it? He wants you to know that they then sprinkled people with it. And so then, when you get to Hebrews 10.22, the verse we started with, and when he says in Hebrews 10.22, our hearts are sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies are washed with pure water, what is he doing? Well, he's building his New Testament doctrine of baptism off of the Old Testament ritual washings. And notice one of the things he wants preserved in that meaning. How is the water applied? Sprinkled. And so the author of Hebrews is just doing what he said you should be doing. He's, he's building his New Testament his his Christian baptism off of the doctrine of Old Testament baptisms. And so this is the first example of how the New Testament assumes that the Old Testament teaches about baptism. That's the first example. The second example, go to Acts chapter 8. This is a familiar story, the Ethiopian eunuch. Acts 8, 27 through 37, so don't get lost in the details. This is the second example of how the New Testament assumes the Old Testament teaches about baptism. So this is a familiar story, but I want to read it all to you. So starting in Acts 8, verses 27 through 37, story of the Ethiopian eunuch. So starting in verse 27, And he rose and went, and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, And as they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? Let's pause right there. Notice Philip doesn't tell him to get baptized. The Ethiopian eunuch, because he read Isaiah 52 and 53, concludes, I need to be baptized. So notice, this is an Ethiopian eunuch. This is not a Jewish scribe. He reads Isaiah 52 and 53 and then concludes, I believe in this Christ. I must be baptized. So his understanding, his very new understanding of baptism is built off his reading, Isaiah 52 and 53. And so he's reading here in this portion of Isaiah. What would he have read that prompted the notion that he should be baptized? Well, if you go back and look at Isaiah 52, you can flip there if you want, but I'm just going to read it quickly. It's Isaiah 52, verses 13 through 15. This is that section that the Ethiopian eunuch was reading in, the section that prompted him to think he must be baptized. What did he read? Isaiah 52, 13 through 15 says, behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him, for that which has not been told them, they see, and that which they have not heard, they understand. So this is Isaiah 52. You know this passage well. This is especially verse 14. It's a prophetic description of the crucifixion of Christ. We as Christians go to this passage a lot. You know it well. And so what it describes in Isaiah 52 verse 14 is how the Messiah is going to be marred beyond human semblance. It will be a mass of bloody flesh. And then in verse 15, what will be done with the blood of this Messiah? Well, verse 15 then says, so shall he sprinkle many nations. Wait, wait, sprinkling blood? What does that sound like? Well, that sounds like the Old Testament sacrificial system where blood was mixed with water. That sounds like the Old Testament sacrifice where the animal was slaughtered and the blood is mixed with water and then it's sprinkled on the people. And we read, and I'll read it for you again just to drive it home, Hebrews 9.19 emphasizes that point when it says that you will... When every commandment of the law has been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people. So again, back to the Ethiopian eunuch. The Ethiopian eunuch is reading Isaiah 52 and 53. When he's done, he says, I must be baptized. Why did he think that? It's because he saw the blood of the sacrifice, the blood of the Messiah, the blood of Christ in Isaiah 52:15, being sprinkled on the people. And Philip helps him understand that this Old Testament sacrifice is mixed with water and therefore baptism. And so, again, we see how the New Testament assumes that the Old Testament teaches about baptism. So the first example was Hebrews 9 and 10. The second example is Acts 8, 27, through 37. The third and final example of how the New Testament assumes the Old Testament teaches about baptism is John chapter 1. Go to John chapter 1. This is a really interesting passage here. Again, you're going to know this one very well. It's John 1, beginning in verse 19. Talking about John the Baptist. You know, John the Baptist was baptizing and all this. And so, picking up how John chapter 1, verse 19. 19, and this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight, the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. Verse 25, they asked him, then why are you baptizing, if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Notice the question in verse 25. They ask him, why are you baptizing? Are you the Christ? Hey, think about their question. John the Baptist is baptizing. They come up to him and say, wait, why are you baptizing? Are you the Christ? What does that question assume about the Christ? What does that question assume about what the Christ will do when he comes? Well, it assumes that the Christ will come baptizing. You see, the Jews expected the Messiah to come and to baptize. Why would they think that? Well, two reasons. First because they knew the elementary doctrine of baptisms in the Old Testament and how the Old Testament uses water as a symbol for cleansing and renewal. And second, because they knew of the promise of the new covenant, which explicitly makes the point about baptism when it says in Ezekiel 36, 25, with the new covenant, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols I will cleanse you. You see, the Christ is going to come baptizing. They all knew that. John's baptizing. They come to him and say, oh, you're baptizing. You must be the Christ. You must be the one who we were told is going to come and baptize us with the new covenant. And he says, no, no, it's not me. Another one's coming. And in that new testament, excuse me, new covenant promise, again, Ezekiel 36, 20, 25, says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And so again, we see a third example of how baptism discussed in the New Testament assumes that the Old Testament teaches about baptism. And so in the Old Testament, as we start to wrap up for today, in the Old Testament, one of the things I want you to see is that there is a very close connection between blood and water. That's the connection the author of Hebrews really wants the church to know in Hebrews chapter 9. There's a close connection between the blood and the water. The blood refers to the sacrifices for sin. The water refers to the washings of purification. And it's important to see that as the Christ was rejected by man in his crucifixion, indeed, he was beaten into shockingly inhuman, bloody mass of flesh, as we read in Isaiah 52.15. Notice that with that bloody mass of flesh, he will sprinkle many nations to make them clean. And that sprinkling obviously will be mixed with water like every other Old Testament sacrifice was mixed with water. And so New Testament doctrine is anticipated in the Old Testament, including baptism. And so back to what the author of Hebrews said. The author of Hebrews said, there are six elementary things upon which you move to maturity. One of those six things was you must understand the instructions about washings. You must understand the doctrine of baptisms in the Old Testament. If you want a proper and mature, to use the author of Hebrews' word, mature understanding of Christian baptism, it must be built on an understanding of the doctrine of Old Testament baptisms. And so, that's what we've tried to do. We've tried to simply obey what the author of Hebrews told us to do. And so, as we wrap up for today... Why did the first century Christians start baptizing? Did they just make this up out of the blue? And what we've seen today is no. They got it from the Old Testament. And we've seen two things, and these are the two things that I want you to walk away with today. They've seen that, or we've seen that baptism was practiced in the Old Testament, and we saw five examples of how that was done, and We've then seen that the New Testament assumes that the Old Testament has something to say about baptism. And we've looked at three examples of that. Thanks for listening. If you want to find out more, check out our website at trinityreformedkirk.com. That's trinityreformedkirk.com.